Hey everyone, this is Tom. Before we begin this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, I want to let you know that we're going to continue our Device Talks Tuesday sessions on Tuesday. You can join me at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. It's an hour earlier than normal, 3 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday to uh, join a conversation I'm having with Mick Farrell, the CEO of ResMed. ResMed has been in the spotlight over the past year as it's helped meet the need for respiratory devices. It's also been in the forefront of including digital health tech into its devices, and we'll tackle both issues on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Go to devicetalks.com to register. We'd love to have you there. Now let's get into this Device Talks Weekly Podcast. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salome. Welcome back. This is the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Happy Friday. <laughs> Happy Friday. Happy Friday. TGIF. Here we are. Are you going to uh, do some grilling this weekend, Mr. Newmarker? Yeah, I think so. I got some, uh, actually have some uh, chicken brats in the, uh, in the fridge, but you know, you're reminding me, though, last time I was shopping for stuff to grill out at the Fresh Time near us, um, I realized I, I discovered <laughs> the real problem of our times. There's another one? There's that whole virus thing going on. And, and the uh, fires? And, like, uh, yeah, San Francisco looks very, uh, you know, 1980s nuclear war movie, you know. But you have, right you now, have one but, more. Yeah, pumpkin. We got to do something about it. It's out of control. I mean, it's, it's fell out of control a few years, but I think it, we finally, um, I, I heard that they were going to be selling pumpkin spice sausages. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Enough. It's just, it's got to stop. I mean, I, I mean, I do, I do enjoy pumpkin pancakes through the winter. Um, but oh, it's a pancake. Of course. It's a pancake. It's just like, it's like frying pumpkin bread. I mean, right. Absolutely. And, and sausage is good. Pumpkin, pumpkin muffins. Good. Pumpkin yeah. beer. Pumpkin no. I tried the pumpkin beer. Really? I don't ever buy it, but I bought one last weekend. It was spicy pumpkin. I thought, I like spice. And, I, and, yeah. and pumpkin, I'll see. It goes together. I poured it out. It was terrible. So that's I'm with you. That's a sad moment when a beer is so bad. You're just like, you know what? I'm not even going to try it. It was making it. me just, angry just, to drink it. I can't do that yeah. to myself. I have too much going on. So, all right. Well, that's, right. that's certainly yeah. an important issue. And I'm glad yes. we, we dealt with that up top. So we're done now, right? We had we talked about the important stuff, and um, hey, have a good weekend, Tom. <laughs> Grill some brats. Well, I think we could we could hit upon a few other items if you don't mind. Today we were uh, we're going to be talking about uh, single use endoscopes. I've got uh, a couple of great interviews lined up with uh, the folks at the Embu. I spoke with the CEO Juan Jose Gonzalez and Stephen Block the head of uh, Ambo US. We talked about uh, the company's growth. It's really a, a fast-growing metal device company, but we also talked about yeah. their move into single-use scopes. It's a great conversation. This is an important issue. So important that I wanted to make sure yeah. we heard from uh, the other leader in the space, Boston Scientific. So I had the opportunity yesterday on Thursday to speak with uh, Dave Pierce and, and Dr. Brian Duncan. They are of uh, Boston Scientific Endoscopy. And they were able to uh, bring us up to date on where Boston Scientific is in this area. And Dr. Duncan 
gave a very compelling reason why we should be using more single-use scope. I bet. I mean, I, I recall myself that there were a, a few major superbug outbreaks just a few years ago related to reusable scopes. Um, yep. You know, some people died. You know, it's this is actually a really this is a good thing that we're getting the single use scopes out now. Absolutely, and both both Ambu and and, and uh, Dr. Duncan they both raise the point that it takes over a hundred steps to to make sure these things are completely sterilized. So yeah. you miss one of those, and you could have some big problems. And 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 of course, COVID, like a, like in every other case, has only heightened the need. So right. the, there are a couple of great interviews. We'll we'll start off with uh, Ambu uh, again, Juan Jose Gonzalez, the CEO. Stephen Block, the head of uh, Imbu US, and then uh, we'll bring Dave Pierce and, and Dr. Brian Duncan in later in the podcast. Now, now everyone just drop what you're doing because it is time for drumroll, Newmarker's Newsmakers. Chris Newmarker, bring number five down on us. Hey, I, you know, the fifth most uh, popular story on a mass device this week is uh, that uh, Kevin Hikes is the, uh, is the news. Kevin Hikes, you know Kevin, right? He's the new CEO of Barty Diagnostics. Kevin Hikes is one of the nicest men in Mentech. He, he co-chaired another device meeting that I did uh, in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. And uh, just super, super low-key guy. For the success he's had with Cameron Health, and he was uh, with uh, Visugen before that. I know he was with Relevant, and he had and he worked on a startup Metavention. Anyway, he's had some great success, but uh, remains a, a truly humble and cool guy. So good for Kevin, and good for Barty. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Barty's got a, uh, a new patch that uh, gives clinicians more flexibility to, to monitor patients. Um, just, just a really, uh, really interesting area. So, so yeah, it's great. So, so it sounds like we got a, a, a neat person as our new CEO. Absolutely. All right. Well, great for Kevin. What is our number four? Well, number four, it isn't directly uh, a med tech story, but it's definitely really related to it. And that's just that, you know, the major, you know, pharmaceutical companies have, they've all agreed not to release a uh, COVID-19 vaccine until it's ready, <laughs> uh, which that, you know, that, that might seem like, shouldn't that be a given that, you know, we're not going to have a vaccine until it's until they know for sure it's uh, it's safe and effective. But, you know, unfortunately, FDA is becoming a real issue in this election. And and so, like, hopefully that uh, that assurance from the pharma companies will will go a long way to, you know, making people you know, hopefully feel confident that, you know, when we do have a vaccine that 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 is released um, and hopefully multiple vaccines that are released, you know, that they'll uh, that they'll work, that they'll be safe, that we can, uh, you know, hopefully get back to you know, a more, more normal version of our lives. It's a, it's amazing to me that that sort of statement had to be made. I mean, I've always believed companies, companies want to do the right thing and in most cases do do the right thing. I've also always thought the FDA was the one that as tough as they could be on products. Sometimes they had the best intentions, just it's a weird role reversal to have companies come out and say, we're going to do this by the book because people unfortunately have some concerns about how uh, regulators are responding to all of this. So, well, that is certainly a good number four. Uh, we will uh, push pause on the new markers, newsmakers and uh, get into our first conversation. Once again, I spoke with uh, Juan Jose Gonzalez. He's a CEO of Ambu AS. They're based in uh, in Denmark. And uh, on the call, I, we also had Stephen Block. He's the head of Ambu AS. Very cool company with coming out some uh, neat devices. And also, we'll talk a little bit about product that, uh, that made them famous. So let's hear from Juan Jose Gonzalez and Stephen Block of Ambu. Right, well, Juan Jose Gonzalez and Stephen Block, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. 
Uh, and thank you very much for inviting us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Embu is one of the, uh, the the fastest growing medtechs out there. So it's an interesting time to be growing a business like this. Um, obviously, the pandemic is creating new challenges and new opportunities. So I'd love to find out how you're uh, taking advantage of both. I want to first just hit a little bit upon the history of the company. The the Embu is the name of the company. It's also the name of one of your principal products, the Embu bag. Which came first? Was it the, the, the chicken or the egg? What's the What's the story there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, it was first uh, the Ambu bag. And Ambu was founded uh, 85 years ago. Wow. And, okay. and today is considered one of the Danish champions in, in medical devices. Uh, and over the last 80 years, we have transformed the company more than once. And now we are in, in the middle of a transformation to to create this single-use endoscopy market that we, we think is going to be a you know, one of the biggest new markets to come up in, in Metex. And Steve, the, the Ambu bag, uh, can you just, uh, for those who don't know about it, I'm told everyone does, but uh, just tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's a resuscitator. It's, uh, it has very strong brand recognition. You see it on any medical show out there. Um, it's in high demand. It's the market leader for resuscitators. Uh, regarding uh, the startup in the U.S., we started in, in the 80s, mm-hmm. so uh, maybe 50 years later than uh, when Ambu uh, started in Denmark, and we were predominantly an EMS company, and that's where the bag uh, came into play. Um, I started in 2013. We were a small uh, distributed business, basically, with a small, uh, small sales force. We were doing about $60 million in revenue, and fast forward uh, seven years later, we've quadrupled revenue. Uh, we have over 500 employees, and we are a leader in anesthesia and uh, pioneered single-use endoscopy. So um, the infrastructure is quite large now, and we're focused on bronchoscopy, ENT, Cisto, and soon-to-be GI. Excellent. Well, let, give me a, one, Jose. Give me a sense of the 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 shape of the company in a global sense. How much of it is in outside the U.S.? How much of it is inside the U.S.? And where else are you in other parts of the world? Sure. So, I mean, we are a global company today, and uh, the U.S. is the most important market. Uh, what Steve and his team have done over uh, the last uh, few years has been remarkable, and, and, and the U.S. accounts for half of our sales globally. And then we are very strong in Western Europe, uh, and we have some presence in Asia, especially in Australia, Japan, and, and China. So that, that, that's more or less the mix. And in terms of portfolio, it's about 30% anesthesia, 30% uh, patient monitoring, and then 40% uh, single-use endoscopy. And that division is growing, I mean, very, very rapidly. You're talking about 40% plus, which basically means that it doubles, you know, every two to three years. And that's the main engine of our company, you know? Let me let me get the COVID question out of the way. Um, but it's you, you are a global company. Con- company you, you touch many countries. How has your experience been in different markets? Let, let me talk a little bit uh, about globally, and then Stephen can talk about uh, the US. Uh, first of all, our products are used in the treatment of COVID nineteen patients. So actually, in this pandemic, Ambu play a very important role. Uh, both our Ambu back the the, the product upon which this company was founded and our single-use bronchoscopy uh, were at the forefront in terms of the treatment of COVID-19 patients. And then the, um, 
you know, the impacts have varied by market significantly, depending on, on how much, uh, how strong was the pandemic, the type of healthcare system, where it was a, a government-driven or where it was major healthcare systems, uh, which basically means that we had significant volatility. So if I look at Europe in, in the last quarter, it tripled in sales. And, and it was mainly driven by the key Western European markets. And, uh, and the U.S. is growing over 20% wow. year to date. So, I mean, it has been quite a test for us. We have had to rapidly expand manufacturing capacity and, and, and air freight our pros to make sure that we fulfill our role as a healthcare company. Yeah, no, I'm, I just, I, yeah, because I'm curious because it seems as if with the single-use endos- endoscopy uh, tool, and your and the Ambu bags, you are positioned for. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of opportunity there in a, in a difficult time like this. Yeah, you know, uh, with COVID, uh, it's heightened awareness now with with uh, contamination and the risk of infection. So we're in excellent shape. We have a diversified portfolio. So from uh, March to June, with elective surgeries uh, non-existent, some of our anesthesia products were put on hold, but resuscitators and the endoscopy products and any single-use scope product uh, showed a huge increase, probably double increase in Q2. We've also managed to launch three new products during COVID uh, with our monitors and two new scopes and uh, the training on, you know, virtual training and and the engagement of of our customers and our salespeople probably was... uh, more efficient, more effective than, than ever before. And I think we're just going to be a much stronger company, at least in the U.S. Uh, after this. Well, let's focus on your news in the U.S. This summer, you uh, you got an approval from the FDA for your single-use endoscope, but but this was not your first device. Give us a little bit of history of, of the single-use endoscope portfolio that you have, because it, it dates back prior to even to this summer. So uh, in 2013, we or 2014 or so, we launched the first uh, bronchoscope, the Ascope 3. Um, and then uh, 2015, there was a CRE crisis with uh, ERCP products. Uh, it, it's, it did catch na- national attention. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of it as far as the infections regarding uh, the ERCP products. So it's been, uh, been a, quite, of a bo- quite of a boom. So we've launched the bronchoscope the ENT product and the Cystoscope. Um, and we just got approval, as you mentioned, for uh, our single-use ERCP product. The interest level for the GI space is greater than any product we ever launched, uh, especially with the documented infections. So there's a strong, there's a strong interest for, the, for a single-use option. Uh, as you mentioned, we're, all, we're also excited that we received FDA clearance uh, with breakthrough designation. Reimbursements uh, available, so I think the track, you know, it's going to get get moving along uh, pretty quickly. And we have a price advantage compared to our other single-use competitor. We're about half the price, and we're we're incredibly excited because it's a multi-billion-dollar market that uh, is much larger than the markets that we've been playing in uh, as of late. And the competitor is Boston Scientific. I'll say it since you won't say it. But well, let's focus on on reimbursement. Were you impacted this week? CMS issued uh, a reimbursement for innovative breakthrough products. I think related to specifically a pandemic, and that's an area I'm currently exploring myself, so I can understand. Were you impacted by that at all, or did you already have the reimbursement you needed prior to to this week's news from CMS or the executive order, I should say, that led to the news from CMS? Well, the, the, the reimbursement that was given for a single-use ERCP was, um, was um, 
offset reimbursement. So it's only used for outpatients, which are about 30 to 40% of the patients. So really the price at the pump is what's driving the sale. Our product is at least half, half the price of, uh, of the competitors. And there is reimbursement for a, a small majority of, of the patients, but overall, it's really the cost of the product that's going to dictate uh, the overall cost. And is there any need for you to have uh, salespeople in the room when it's used? I would imagine not to assist with this. It's just sort of get it in the shelves kind of thing. I, you know, I would say ideally it's best to have the salesperson in the room. We hired about 160 or so GI professionals. I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, we probably have the best GI sales force on the market, uh, in the market, excuse me. Uh, we have X, you name it, every top GI company, uh, they're here. They wanted to launch this product. They wanted to make history. Uh, they have contacts with with all the key uh, gastroenterologists around the country. Um, if they can't get into cases, which uh, obviously we can't get into many cases nowadays, they are doing virtual uh, meetings. They're meeting in parking lots. They're meeting in coffee shops. There's great interest in this product. And uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of demos and presentations in a short time span of maybe uh, a month or two. Interesting. And those, those meeting in the parking lots, those are in, in coffee shops are with surgeons or comp, uh, hospital executives or whomever, all the above? All the above. All uh, physicians, healthcare providers, uh, administration, executives. Uh, it's amazing what's going out there. Juan Jose, what's, uh, what's, how does this look on a, on a global sense? What are other markets doing? Uh, is price as much of a driver there as it, as it is here? And are you running into the same hurdles as to getting an opportunity for salespeople to interact with potential customers or customers? I, I mean, endoscopy, as you know, is one of the largest uh, medical device markets. And it's a very established market. And, and it's mainly, it's a reusable endoscopy model. And, and basically what we are doing globally is driving the creation of a single-use market, which is a combination of uh, a product that is 100% sterile, so there is no risk of contamination, that have very strong economics, very advanced technology, and it gives uh, hospitals a lot of convenience and flexibility. So when you look at that value proposition, it actually travels around the world quite well. What we have created in the US, we have done something similar in the United Kingdom and Spain and Italy and Germany uh, and Australia. Of course, outside of the US, pricing is even more important and that gives us a, a stronger position. And, and, and depending where you are, there are some additional uh, differences in terms of whether it is a hospital base or in clinic, and you have different levels of access. But, but for the most part, healthcare systems are trying to restart electives. They look at single-use endoscopy as a solution to be able to do it without any concerns around infection. No? So is just, just looking broadly ahead to, to where we're headed with single-use endoscopy, is, is your vision and the vision of anyone else selling products in this market, parentheses, Boston Scientific, that, to have all endoscopes be disposable? Or do you see this as a, as a subset of the endoscope market? And there'll still be some that need to be that need to be disinfected and sterilized, but they'll also be single use, use side by side. What, is, what does the future look like in your mind? I, you know, as, as, far, as, as far as my mind, um, I, I seriously see over the next five to 10 years, uh, reuse, uh, reusables 
Maybe they won't be gone totally, but uh, single use will have a, the majority of the market share. There, there's just no reason to use a reusable product. Single use is, you know, the image screen, the image is better, the functionality, the availability, the cost. Um, it's not about uh, if you're going to do it or, or convert. It's about when you're going to convert. And, you know, most hospitals, I mean, right now, the top 500 hospitals in the U.S., we've converted 96% of them as far as um, volume of, of bronchoscopies. There, there is no reason not to do it. And the hospitals that aren't doing it are really pointing their fingers to the hospitals next door saying they have the problem. We don't have the problem. And quite honestly, uh, once there's a seminal event, they call us and they convert immediately. So sometimes it takes uh, uh, a couple of weeks and sometimes it might take a couple of years, but sooner or later they will go single use. Is conversion, do you consider it if you just get in the door or is it that all the endoscopes are used, are all single use that are well, used? Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of different types of scopes. Uh, we have a bronchoscopy, we have bronchoscopy, we have cysto, we have ENT, we have uh, duodenoscope. Um, so we have different salespeople for, for different scopes. And conversion, I guess the first step to conversion is to have them accept the, the idea of why they need to go single use. Sometimes it, it could be a couple of champions within, within, the, uh, within the hospital that start off the, con the conversion, and then it leads to a full conversion. There are some hospitals, very large institutions out there that, um, that just totally convert. Um, it, it's all based on what has happened in the past, um, administration, um, possible legalities, uh, workflow expenses. Um, th there's an array of, uh, of reasons why. And, and at the end of the day, it, have, it has to have a good health economic story, which, which we do have. Sure. And Juan Jose, how about uh, outside the U.S.? I mean, what I was thinking is, uh, just reflecting on your question, I mean, today's single-use endoscopy is about 1% to 2% of the total endoscopy market. So if you ask me, you know, over the next few years, are we going to coexist? Uh, definitely. In most hospitals, there will be reusable and there will be single use. But if you were to start doing endoscopy today with the technology available today, you will never create a reusable model. You will never say, let's, uh, you know, buy a $200,000 tower with a $50,000 reusable scope, less use chemicals to reprocess it, and by the way, at the end, it might not be fully sterile, and it might break, and then you will have to buy another one. Uh, it's just, it, it's a business model that you will, not, you will never do it now. So if you ask me going forward, what do I think? Uh, technology is moving so fast, and, and I'm talking about technology that powers single-use, sensors, image enhancement software, artificial intelligence, monitors, lighting, material science. You know, every year, all that trends to move to single-use becomes stronger, more focus on infection control, more awareness of the benefits in terms of economics, more need for convenience and flexibility, regulators, reimbursement. And then on top of that, you put technology. And I fully agree with Stephen. In 10 years, you should see a significant shift towards single use now. 
Yeah, Tom, just to add a little bit to that, and, uh, and you know, cross-contamination is a huge issue. Infections are a huge issue. COVID has heightened awareness. But um, I, I'm sure you follow ECRI uh, annually, and scope contamination is in the top 10 in issues that hospitals, fa- that hospitals face on a, on a yearly mm-hmm. basis. And reprocessing a scope, there's 100 steps to reprocess a scope, and human error is, is inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, the studies out there show upwards of 50% that reusable scopes are contaminated. Um, I have just countless stories, and there's many studies. I mean, there's one study that said 57% are contaminated. So it's, you know, again, it, it's, not, it, it's not if, it's, it's when. Great. This podcast allows me to ask stupid questions. So my stupid question, maybe everyone else who's listening knows, is what, what changed? Why are, we, why are you able to create these scopes now that can be disposed of as opposed to before? Is it just new materials, just cheaper manufacturing? Again, all of the above. What's, what's new in, the, in this technology? I, I would say two things happen. Number one, technology reached a point where now you can have a single-use endoscopy with a image resolution required to be able to have a, a good procedure and a good diagnostic. And, and, you know, if you remember your iPhone five generations ago versus your iPhone today, uh, the quality of the image, so that sensor, those sensor upgrades, that's actually what is also driving um, our own innovation. And then uh, on the other side, you have an environment that now is more focused on understanding what is the true contamination level, the importance of infection control, how much it really costs to have all that reusable endoscopy infrastructure, and, and how does it compare against single use. Uh, and I will say those things is what actually allow AMBU to start innovating, to create a market, and now moving into an acceleration phase now. And final question, I know you need to go. Uh, regarding the, uh, the agreement with Premier, it's a three-year agreement. What, uh, tell us a little bit about that, Stephen, or, or Juan Jose, and uh, what does that mean? It sounds as if uh, it gives you some degree of exclusivity uh, in the area, or does it? It does. So, so we have, uh, we have a, a fantastic corporate account team and great relations with, with all the GPOs and IDNs. Uh, we've been working with Premier very closely. Um, they developed uh, and created a, a single a single use uh, endoscopy agreement. It's a nationwide agreement, um, but for uh, sole source, it's more for Premier. I'm sorry, it's more for Surpass and for Ascend, which are uh, affiliates of Premier. So the Premier agreement is a nationwide multi source. Uh, but regarding Ascend and Surpass, we have a single, uh, a sole source for Bronchoscope. But all scopes are on the agreement. And that will uh, essentially give you access. How, how, it, the, the membership of Premier represents 4,100 hospitals and health systems, 200,000 other providers. So, I mean, what does this do for your, your market penetration in the U.S.? Well, it definitely helps. I mean, it definitely helps in Surpass and, and Ascend, where we have a sole source. And Premier will work with us to convert those hospitals. Uh, regarding GPOs in general, it, it just gives you uh, a ticket to get to the dance. Uh, there are no obstacles, so it gives us free passage to uh, work with Premier and start converting their hospitals across the board. 
But regarding surpass and ascend, it will definitely give us uh, incremental revenue for sure. All right. Well, that's great news about Premier. Uh, Juan Jose, we'll give you the opportunity to wrap this up. I mean, this is a, is a great story. Uh, European company building, growing into a global, uh, a global device company. What, uh, what does that say for, well, Ambu's story, but also more broadly about opportunities in Europe? Well, I, I mean, the, the aspiration for Ambu is to be the world's most innovative single-use endoscopy player. And, and I would say that is quite unique, uh, first because we are based in Europe, and it has been sometimes if you have a, a European medtech champion, one that is able to disrupt uh, an established market, market and create an entirely new one. Uh, and that's what we are trying to do. And, and we invest aggressively in innovation. We believe that we come from the future. We are taking all the technologies, all the new technologies coming up to be able to advance patient care in a way that has not been done before. And, and we are very excited with the possibilities. Excellent. Well, it's a great story. I'm uh, grateful that you uh, chose to share it with us. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. And we're back. Interesting conversation with, uh, with Ambu. They've got really some tremendous growth. So it's going to be interesting to see what, uh, what kind of company they turn into in four or five years. Yeah, absolutely. So what is our number three most talked about, most read item on Mass Device? You know, number three, um, hopefully I pronounce this right, Theranica um, received a C mark for its uh, Norivio device for uh, acute treatment of migraines, and this is uh, the, this is basically like a, a wearable smartphone-controlled you know neuromodulation device that you know provides you know a little bit of stimulation to hopefully help with uh, with with pain control. And um, this actually got a FDA de novo clearance uh, you know over uh, over a year ago. And uh, and and yeah, there's just kind of like some of these. You know, I mean, there's been stuff like tens devices around, you know, for you know for a long time. But you know, it looks like that type of technology is just like increasingly getting sophisticated, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just having some devices that can help us control pain versus uh, taking painkillers is uh, that just sounds like a really good thing. All right, well, let's get into number two. What is the second most read article on Mass Devices this week? I know the second most article was you know, really one that was of our own creation, and that was that our uh, managing editor uh, Nancy Crotty, she uh, you know reached out you know to some of the um, you know top insiders in the medical device industry and kind of did a story on you know how will the you know the presidential election affect you know medtech, and I think one of the big themes that came out of it was that I mean of course like yeah you know, you know a second administration term of Trump versus, you know, a Biden administration, I mean, they'll be, they'll, they'll be very, very different. Um, but, you know, one, one commonality, no matter who wins, is that, you know, the relationship between, uh, you know, FDA, you know, and the industry is going to be a big issue just because it's, it's just mm-hmm. changed so much during the, during the pandemic. I mean, we've had, um, you know, just, uh, you know, this whole, you know, slew of emergency use authorizations. We're just trying to get as much technology out there to fight the pandemic, but we'll have to, you know, circle back, you know, after this hopefully settles down in a year or so and, and say, okay, how do we, you know, how, how does the relationship between FDA and the device industry, you know, grass, you know, going forward. It's going to be amazing to see what the, the long-term impacts of this, this year or two years will be. Yeah. Um, 
I just feel, feel like we've been rewriting the rules as, as we go along. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll come out better and stronger on the other side. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go right to uh, to number one because this is a story that I think. Uh, <laughs> People are clearly interested. It's the number one most read article, and it's one that just it's a story that kind of keeps on giving. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean the, I mean the, the you know the uh, the trial for you know former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes is uh, not it's not going to start until March, but. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's still just major news coming out of it. And, you know, kind of the big thing this week was that, I mean, it sounds like like Holmes is considering you know, making some kind of mental disease defense. And and this news came out because the uh, federal judge in San Jose uh, released a court order that was allowing, um, you know, prosecutors to uh, have her uh, psychologically examined because she's already been examined by another clinical psychologist who could be a potential witness. Um, in, in the trial. So, um, so yeah, she, I mean, the, the order was saying she's going to have to, uh, you know, do uh, two days of uh, psychological examination uh, uh, that are videotaped. Um, but um, it's, it's just, yeah, it, it, really interesting to see what ends up happening with, uh, with that defense. Uh, you know, the parts of the order that discussed what, you know, this um, claimed mental disease was were redacted. So yeah, it'll be, you know, it, it, we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll see how that, uh, you know, plays out. But I mean, it, it, in this country, making a, any kind of, uh, you know, defense around, you know, mental illness is it's just very hard. Absolutely. Great point. All right, well, let's get into uh, our, our second interview of the day. This again, I spoke with uh, Dave Pierce. He's the executive vice president and president of the Med Surge Group at Boston Scientific. And uh, also spoke with Dr. Brian Duncan, the chief medical officer at Boston Scientific. And uh, we talked about uh, their single use line, their Exalt product, the, the bumps in the road they had in, in rolling it out and uh, what the future offers. Let's listen. Well, Dr. Brian Duncan and David Pierce, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. So this is a, an interesting area, single-use endoscopy, and it's an area where you folks made some headlines in December with the approval of Exalt. I wanted to follow up on where you are in this line in the endoscopy business. Uh, first of all, how have the first six months or so gone with uh, Exalt? So the great question, and, and thanks for your interest. So you're right. In December, we were the first company to receive breakthrough approval for single-use duodenoscope. Uh, we have done some great clinical work to date. Uh, we've now have three publications uh, on the technology, one bench top, two with a total of 108 patients. Uh, so we're, we're doing the right work from a clinical standpoint. We feel like the technology uh, is going to be well-received by the customer base. Obviously, in the COVID, uh, in the era of COVID, uh, the adoption has been a little bit slower than we had anticipated. Certainly, uh, late March, April, May, really challenging as hospital administrators were focusing, rightly so, on COVID. Uh, we've seen nice acceleration in July, August, and, and starting in September. So we feel good about it, and uh, we feel like we have a winning technology. Just so I understand, when did customers actually have the ability to to buy and to use Exalt? Was it available in January, or is it just rolled out more, more recently? Uh, it was really rolled out toward the end of February <laughs> uh, from a manufacturing capacity standpoint, and then obviously um, <laughs> not the best timing. <laughs> the entire world shut down in uh, in March. 
Uh, but the, the interest remains very, very high. Dr. Duncan, can you speak to the uh, the necessity for, for this kind of technology uh, prior to COVID? And then maybe we can revisit now in the COVID era where concerns about infection are even more heightened. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. And, um, you know, the necessity really comes out of the difficulty with reprocessing reusable duodenoscopes in this space. I mean, duodenoscopes, probably among or definitely is among the most complex scopes that we use. Um, and as a result, that complexity leads to difficulties in reprocessing. It's a human factors nightmare, uh, well over 130 manual steps uh, for, for cleaning a scope and getting it ready for the next patient. And as we've seen with the studies that have come out of the FDA, even when that process is done with oversight and using what's thought to be best practice, one in 20 endoscopes that are thought to be patient ready have a pathogen of concern on them and have, are putting the next patient at risk. So that's, you know, as a clinician, and I've done thousands of these procedures in my practice as a therapeutic endoscopist, um, that's concerning, right? Nobody wants to tell a patient that you got a one in 20 chance that the thing I'm going to use for you uh, is contaminated. So huge need. Interesting, it's still a growing kind of understanding in the clinical community about that need. Um, and, and that's might be more on an international than on a U.S. basis. But definitely, uh, this is a this is a technology that meets that need. And one, one thing that we've learned, uh, not only is the magnitude of the problem, but is kind of the underlying reason for it. Uh, I know in the early days of discussion, the focus was on the tip of the scope. Uh, a duodenoscope, as, uh, as many know, has an elevator on its tip, uh, this movable ramp that I can use to change the direction of the instrument that's passed through it. And that's different, right? So we thought, well, it must be something around the elevator. And certainly it's hard as heck to clean around that thing. And so there was a lot of focus on that. But as we started to understand this problem more, this is a biofilm problem. Uh, bacteria make biofilm. It's like a syrup that they uh, envelop themselves in to protect themselves from their environment and increase their kind of virulence. And biofilms form on any wet surface. So any internal wet surface within an endoscope, uh, duodenoscope or otherwise, is susceptible to a biofilm. So that means if you're going to focus on a replaceable tip or a condom on the tip or something like that, that's a partial solution, um, which is why uh, we at Boston Scientific wanted a comprehensive solution and uh, leverage our experience in single-use endoscopes uh, you know, that we've built up over many years to make a single-use device that, that absolutely eliminates the possibility of uh, endoscope-acquired infection coming from reprocessing. Well, he hearing that, that's a really good sales pitch to me as a patient. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would why would there be any any resistance at all? Maybe I'm mischaracterizing it as resistance, but but uh, David, in, in selling this, uh, what has to tell, talk a bit about the force you've assembled to to sell, to engage customers, and what is sort of the the dialogue around that? What what would prevent someone from seeing this as a as a, an improvement? Yeah, so, I mean, Boston Scientific Endoscopy has been the category leader in the GI endoscopy space for many years. We've been in this business for 40 years, and we've been pioneers in so many different technologies from uh, single-use biopsy forceps, devices to create hemostasis, multiple stents for the different anatomies throughout the GI tract. In 2007, we launched our first scope, the Spyglass, 
we're on our fourth generation of that technology right now, and it definitively changes the way a clinician can diagnose and therefore treat patients with pancreatic or biliary disease. So we've taken that 40 years of experience and intimacy with the GI um, community and built what we feel is a fantastic scope, single use, eliminates the infection risk, as Dr. Duncan alluded to. Uh, and we're putting it through what we think is the best GI sales channel in the industry and combining their efforts with our world-class device portfolio, now augmenting it with a single-use scope portfolio and really bringing the full force to bear. When we go into a hospital, there's a lot of constituencies that are going to be involved in making this decision, right? Obviously, you want to have clinical support. You want to have the support of the infection prevention team. And then in some cases, uh, C-suite uh, folks get involved uh, because it's a different economic uh, situation than the reusable scopes. We feel like we're doing the right work, meeting all the answering all the questions for those constituencies. We've applied for and received the, uh, the TPT for uh, Medicare outpatient. We're working on getting a new technology add-on payment for the Medicare inpatient. So we're doing the right work to ensure that any economic concerns are addressed. And in the long term, we're going to have a technology that's safer for patients, puts the staff of the hospital at a lower risk, increases efficiency and not have a, uh, an economic challenge to it. And, and we've discussed prior to my pushing record that, that I've, I've talked to Ambu, which has a product in the field as well. Uh, there's a difference in price between yours and theirs. Theirs is, is cheaper. Uh, how do you see that sort of playing into Boston Scientific story? Is that something you need to overcome? Is that difficult to overcome? What's the, what's the situation on price? Yeah, so for us, we feel like we're pricing our scope appropriately. We think the value that our scope delivers clinically um, from an efficiency standpoint, from a safety of your staff's standpoint, and obviously eliminating the, the risk of infection, that full package of value, we feel like we're priced appropriately. And ultimately, we'll work through Medicare to get all of those patients covered. And we'll work with private payers um, following that to get private payer coverage as well. And mm -hmm. Tom, let me, if I just can add one thing on that. I mean, please do. You know, this, this is a nuanced procedure doing ERCP with a duodenoscope. Um, and, uh, you know, Dave talks about Boston Scientific, and we've been in this space for, for a long time making the devices that go through that scope. So we have a pretty deep understanding of what it takes to do the procedure successfully. And making a scope that uh, can do that um, is, is significant. You know, um, uh, as an endoscopist, we get a little bit superstitious, almost like your favorite baseball bat or tennis racket or something, right? Like you get used to what's, what, that, what you have in your hand and the success that you have with it and meeting the requirements, those requirements with a single use platform uh, is, not an easy, uh, is not an easy thing to do. And so I think that um, having a device that looks, feels, and functions like a reusable device doesn't change the procedure for me as the clinician and gives me the same uh, success rate at, you know, performing the procedure. That's no small task. And I think that uh, that's also part of that formula on value. That's a, that's a great point. And it's, and it's in line with the question I want to ask on the, on the clinician front. We can, we can talk about dollars and administrators have their own priorities, but clinicians, are they, yeah, I think you, you hit upon this a little bit earlier on, but are, is this a technology, an idea they're willing to embrace, or do they like 
again, I guess maybe is there more heft to a reusable device that they're comfortable with? Is there something that they're clinging to? Yeah, I don't know if I'd characterize it as clinging. I would say there's, if you've never seen the scope, the idea is, you know, you meet it with skepticism. I'm a reusable scope is, you know, costs more than most people's car, right? That's an expensive <laughs> device um, that's sophisticated. You look at this thing, you're like, this is a sophisticated piece of equipment. How could you possibly make this in a, to a single-use platform? But then when they get it in their hands, and even more when they use it for a procedure, um, uh, th- th- that part is impressive to me. In fact, one of the things that, that I take as a, as a great sign of success is that when I'm watching clinicians do procedures with this scope, whether that's part of a live broadcast or if I'm in the room with them alone, um, there's discussion about the scope in the beginning. Oh, it's a little lighter. The wheels feel like this. The shaft feels like that, which are kind of the usual discussions you, you have when you change to a different manufacturer. If I use the reusable X and then I go to a reusable Y, it's going to feel a little bit different. And that's what people equate it to. But then once the scope's in position and they're doing the procedure, we're not talking about the scope anymore. We're talking about the procedure, the cannulation, the disease that the patient has and that kind of thing. That's exactly what we were trying to accomplish uh, in developing it. So, so there is this skepticism until they get it in their hands and use it. And then I think that skepticism goes quickly away. And Brian, I just, you know, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the clinical publications, the two that have 108 patients and uh, maybe speak to the kind of how the ASG classifies ERCP and that the scope's been successfully used in even the most difficult cases. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Dave. You know, ASG, um, which is really the, the dominant U.S. society around therapeutic endoscopy and really the voice of ERCP in the, in the healthcare community, uh, one of the things they do uh, that they delivered to us is a, is a measurement tool for kind of the difficulties of ERCP. Like, okay, you know, yeah, if you want to do comparative studies, how difficult is this case versus that? So they classify ERCP in four different categories, uh, one being the easiest, four being the hardest, and it has to do with anatomy, disease, those kinds of things. And uh, Exalt, in the studies that, uh, that we have used it in to, to look at its performance, have used, been used in everything, one through four. We didn't want to cherry pick cases, take the ones and twos, not do the threes and fours. In fact, I was talking to one of our investigators. His first case was a four. Like, you know, it's just, um, he's like, I, I wouldn't have chosen that if I was uh, making a decision, but that's the way the trial was designed and that's the way we went and it went successfully. So um, again, it, it does speak to the performance demands on this scope in general, and then being able to recreate that in a single-use platform. That's helpful. I know you have a few more minutes, so just two quick questions. Uh, what is what is the vision for single-use scopes going forward? Is this five years from now? Are ninety-five percent of these going to be uh, just the single-use? Is it going to be fifty-fifty? How does this play out in Boston Scientific's plans? Yeah, so I'll I'll take that, and then Brian, if you want to um, grow with that a little bit. I mean, I, so. Prior to uh, coming back to endoscopy recently, I spent the last four years in our urology business. And four, four-ish, almost five years ago, we launched um, our first single-use ureteroscope. Uh, and the adoption was um, slow but steady. But over time, uh, what we started to see was the utilization went up and up and up and up because of the fact that you could 
confidently know that there would be no infection associated with the scope. You knew you could test and work that scope as hard as possible because even if there was some uh, performance deminimization, you weren't going to have to use that on the next patient. So you could take on the hardest and most difficult cases and do those. The uh, efficiency, the scope was always available. You didn't have to rely on the, the hospital uh, cleaning staff to, to get your product back to you. So all of those factors led to a much broader adoption than we had anticipated at first. And I can see several of those factors coming into play uh, with, with Exalt going forward. Yeah, Tom, I might just add to that from a clinical standpoint. You know, it, it is one of the questions we get frequently is, well, which, which patients should I use it on? And I think in the beginning, many are going to segment patients and they're going to, they're going to segment them according to risk, like we do in a lot of things in healthcare, right? We have to make kind of uh, risk benefit decisions uh, with our patients. And so, you know, we've talked about patients that have something compromised in their immune system, a transplant patient or an immunosuppressed patient, uh, cancer patient, those kinds of things, where if they were to get an endoscope-acquired infection, they're not going to tolerate that well. That's a patient to consider on. The other is if a patient's coming to my endo unit and they already have an active infection, that infection could contaminate my existing inventory of reusable scopes. So I got to think about that as well. And, and so those are, those are two big areas that, uh, that we talk about. I will say I've had discussions with um, clinicians all the way from the big academic centers out to more uh, small, you know, medium and small communities. And, and some of the ones I've talked to uh, said, look, I do a couple hundred of these procedures a year. I don't do a couple of thousand. I have one or two scopes and it is becoming untenable for me to uh, reprocess the scope the way it has to be reprocessed according to the new guidelines and that. And by the way, the thing's starting to run out and now I have to, uh, on its life, and now I have to make a decision about a new capital equipment. They're planning to go with a single use scope. It can meet their needs uh, and they don't have to worry about maintaining this, uh, this scope, this reusable scope inventory. So I think you're going to see at the very least the patient segmentation and then a build from there depending on kind of my, um, my local regional issues and also my the patient populations that I'm serving. That's excellent. And, and final quick question. I know you need to go. Brian, you spoke earlier about the impact that COVID had on, on in, in March and April and May. The impact is long lasting. Uh, salespeople are having a difficult time getting in hospitals. How has this impacted your uh, selling of Exalt and, and moving into the area? Are you being hindered by an ability to get people connected with physicians? If so, how are you overcoming that? So I think I'll take a quick shot at that, Brian, and then you can add any points. I think one of the huge advantages that we have is the long-term relationships that we have with really every hospital that does ERCP in the country and many around the world. So we have access as we're supporting cases. We're, we'll get called in to support a difficult case. We'll get called in um, for any number of reasons. So access is definitely not where it was pre-pandemic. But I think we certainly have an advantage just based upon our long-term relationships. And we've also very effectively pivoted to some virtual tools uh, to engage our physician customers, their staff. So we're teaching, educating, and servicing virtually. Uh, and we're also able to reach out through the other constituents in the hospital in virtual, uh, in virtual ways as well. Anything to add? Final word, Dr. Duncan? 
No, I mean, I just, uh, the, you know, we're doing e-preceptorships now to get that, to extend that reach. So clinicians, I want to see this scope in action can, can get that experience. And then the only other thing I would say in this COVID era is one of the things that I found interesting from a number of the clinicians we talked to is that they're looking at the use of this technology to minimize exposure of staff to COVID because, you know, you're, it's one and done. When you're, when you're done with the procedure, there's no transport, reprocessing, and exposing really highly trained staff, whether that's the nurse and tech in the room or the uh, reprocessing tech, to having to reprocess a scope on a COVID patient. So we've, we've, had, uh, we've had clinicians come to us with that concern in mind as well. And I think the, the uh, COVID experience is uh, going to have people in a heightened sen- sensitivity about managing infectious issues uh, forever, basically, not not just when the pandemic goes away, God willing. Great point. Well, thank you both uh, for your time and your insights and for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it. Great. Thanks, Tom. All right, and we're back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave Pierce and Dr. Brian Duncan of Boston Scientific. Chris Newmarker, this is the time when we say goodbye. But first, we've got to remind people that uh, they have an opportunity to join in on this fun little call on September 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Chris and I record these intros on Zoom. We'd love to have you as part of the conversation. Probably we'll use some of the uh, call in a future podcast. So if you have a story to tell or some insights to share, please do uh, shoot us an email or shoot us your email address on LinkedIn. Reach, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Say hi, shoot your email. We'll add you to the invite for the Zoom meeting and uh, we'll just have a, a ton of fun. I, I hope, hope we get a good crowd. It'd be great. What, what time of the day is it on the 17th? 3 p.m. Eastern 3 time. 3 p.m. Yes. All right. So. so so we can sit around, sip some pumpkin beer. No. You think? And- <laughs> Nice try, new marker. No pumpkin coffee either. None of that crapola. We're gonna no pumpkin spice latte. You know the latte. If you're gonna take pumpkin, I guess the latte is probably the least effect. But anyway, I don't know. No pumpkin yeah. whatsoever. Stop. We gotta stop. Stop we breaking just... me down there, new marker. Yeah. So where can folks find you on social media, Chris, so they can send you their email and let you know they want to be part of these ridiculous conversations? I, I'm right here. I'm right on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. Um, and you can find me on Twitter as well at Newmarker. Always happy to chat. Same here. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. I'm on Twitter at MedTech. Tom. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please, 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 please share this podcast on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Uh, Tag Chris and I and all of your friends so they all know that this is the greatest podcast on earth. We'd love to have uh, have more folks listening. We'd love to talk with people on LinkedIn about the things we're talking about and love to know what we should be talking about in the future. So uh, make sure you reach out and again, share this on, uh, on your social media channels. And please make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'd love to have you get these podcasts as soon as possible. Just push the subscribe button on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and we'll send future podcast episodes directly to you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for tuning in. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Pumpkin power. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.